Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. We've been married 32 years, and uh, I got my father gave me one really wise piece of advice before I got married, and it's held true for 32 years. On my wedding day, my father said to me, before you argue with your new wife, and you're going to argue with her, before you do, take some time, step back, ask yourself two questions. Do you want to be right, or do you want to be happy? Right. And then he broke down and sobbed right in front of me. We've been married 32 years, and uh, I got, my father gave me one really wise piece of advice before I got married, and it's held true for 32 years. On my wedding day, my father said to me, before you argue with your new wife, and you're going to argue with her, before you do, take some time, step back, ask yourself two questions. Do you want to be right, or do you want to be happy? (laughs) Right. And then he broke down and sobbed right in front of me. what that man was talking about. 32 years later, I can tell you this, I'm a happy, happy, happy man. I ain't been writing 12 years now. Sometimes I even have to ask her, am I happy? Oh, you better believe you're happy. I was just checking with you, buttercup. Call my friends up. I can't go golfing, but I'm a happy, happy, happy man. Get me wrong, we argue. You've got to argue in your marriage. You don't argue in your marriage, it'll build up in your brain over time and fries your brain. Yeah, and then you wind up like those babbling, mumbling couples you've seen in Arizona, Florida, with 50 plus years of marriage, they're kind of walking down the street. The wife is fine. It's the poor husband, eight feet behind her, that scares me to death. This poor man's all hunched over, he's vibrating, mumbling, always oh, telling me what to do. Start telling you what to do. I'm a man. You can't tell. I'm a man. I'm a man. This poor guy's starting to try to win back all the arguments he's been throwing away for 50 years. You know, he was 6'3 when he got married. Now he's 4'1. Look at the poor man. Weighed down by half a century of apathy. Leave a toilet seat up if I want to leave a toilet seat up. Tell me what to do. I hope you sit in the water every night. I don't care. And that's when she turns around. What'd you just say to me? I didn't say nothing to you. (laughs) Scary. to learn how to communicate. That's the word. Communication. You have to learn how your spouse communicates. That takes time. Men and women communicate differently. It took me two years of marriage to figure out my wife will never tell me to do anything around our home. If Tammy wants me to do something, she'll ask me a question. It's from the question that i got to stand there and figure out what it is she wants me to do. Simple example. Say I leave a pair of my underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor, which frosts my wife. That's her word when she's angry. That just frosts me, Jeffrey. <laughs> if I'm not frosting her, I'm driving her up a wall. That's another one. Kids would come in. Where's mom? She's up the wall with frostbite. That's all I know. <laughs> you won't believe what put her there, man. It was that pair of underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor. You're looking at the most powerful piece of cotton on planet Earth. So I leave my underwear in the middle of the room. Would she come to me and say to me, pick those up? That's three words. Hey, pick those up. Three words! 
And she's saying no, because that would be simple, direct, and right to the point. And at that moment, we would be communicating at the highest human level. The way God the Creator intended it, through language. She looks at me, looks at my underwear, and then asks, Are those yours? I sure hope they are, otherwise i got a few questions of my own. I thought we needed a little bit of comedy on this Valentine's Day morning, right? Um, anybody feel like you can resonate with some of that? Maybe some of us? Um, so I think what this paints is this picture of marriage that's a little bit different than that picture that we had in our heads or minds when we were younger. Do you remember those days? So I'm, I'm going to tell you a couple stories today, but... Uh, Pastor Chris and I met when we were like 16, and it was not love at first sight. That was not what brought us together at all. It was my competitiveness. I hate to admit that, right? Because he came to me and he was like, Hey, Heather, you have this friend. She has really nice legs. I'd like to ask her out. Help me do that. And all of a sudden, I was like, She has nice legs. I don't think so. Like, I'm going to have to win this one, right? So we start having conversations, and then you get to know him, and then you think that he's a nice guy, and then 20-some years later, we've got all these years of marital bliss. But it was that competitiveness that started it. And in those early years, I was sure that I loved him. And I did. I loved him. I loved him like I cared about him as a human being. But I loved him like I had those butterfly feelings where you get all googly-eyed and twitter-pated when you look at him. You remember those days, some of you. Maybe, I hope. Um, But love changes over time. Love is a really beautiful and complicated thing that we often take for granted. It has so many layers and levels and so much depth. And no two people can have that same kind of relationship. It's unique all the way through. Whether it's how you feel about one of your kids, and I have five, and I love them all, and we have those competitions like, who do you love more? None. Right? You love them all. But the same but different, because love is just one of those super powerful things like that. Um, But we're going to look at a chunk of scripture today that many of you are very, very familiar with. If you've ever attended a wedding, I'm sure you heard this one. And I'm going to read it not intending to mock the Bible. Hear my heart. I'm going to read it the way I heard it on my wedding day. Okay? So it comes out of 1 Corinthians and it goes like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Do you remember seeing those as the husband and wife stare into each other's eyes, like sure that this is going to be the greatest thing of all time? Do you remember that feeling? So I have a revised version now. Um, and i gotta, I got to give you a little background on this. I have a mother who um, has what we call toilet talks. So they look like this. When I was a teenager, I'd be in the mirror in the bathroom curling my hair in the morning. 
And so she would come in, put down the, the lid on the toilet seat, and sit there and start preaching to me. And she would tell me all about the world and how it works and everything I've done wrong and who else did things wrong and how they should be doing them right. And I got these little mini sermons because I was a captive audience because I wasn't going to go to school with my hair half curled. We had to do the other side, so I was stuck. And she knew that. She was a smart, smart woman. Well, so she had this set of sermons, and some of them you heard more than once, so you could begin quoting them back to her. And it kind of became a joke. We would talk about if that story came from the first or the second book of Anne, because we're pretty sure she kind of had written her own Bible in the process. And um, now she still has those talks. She confesses. She knows she does this. But she does it in the car with her grandchildren, because she says they're a captive audience. Either they have to listen to me or they have to jump out of the car, and nobody's jumped yet. I'm just waiting for one of them too. So true story. Yesterday I'm talking to my mother in the car. And uh, my dad in the background is like, you know, Heather, if you need somebody to preach on a Sunday, your mom sounds like she's good and ready. And I was like, I'm just talking about you tomorrow, Mom. <laughs> so so she's got this book of Anne. So what I'm going to share with you comes from the book of Heather. It's kind of like the message version, but with a twist on this same scripture. See if you can relate to this like me at all. Love is listening to a play-by-play of the latest Avengers movie or hearing the retelling of a 10-minute Apex Legend game that takes a good 30, 40 minutes to tell, including explanations of all the artillery and the skins and the drop zones and a whole bunch of other words that you have no idea what they mean. Love is sharing my chocolate with my husband. And not just being like, sure, you can have the one that's the mystery chocolate, but like really sharing the good ones. You know, the dark chocolate truffles that you love? It does not complain when Pastor Chris goes to Tampa again for another church planting conference while I am snowblowing the driveway in a blizzard. It does not gloat when I am right and he is wrong. Even though that does happen, not as often as I would like, but it does. It is not focused on my great accomplishment for the day, but instead focuses on what my kids and my husband need to hear and me praising them for who they are, not for what they do. It does not pick on Chris for how he wrongly says the word theater instead of theater. (laughs) It is not using manipulative conversations to get my way. It is not having me ready to scream when I get home from work and I see the kitchen counter and sink filled with breakfast and lunch dishes from everybody who has been home all day when I have been gone. It picks the dirty underwear up off of the floor for the 7,153rd time. Actually, this morning makes it 54th, but who's counting, right? And really, I did the math. That's a pretty accurate number, sad to say. Uh, Love does not laugh when the kids tear each other down. Even though sometimes it is kind of funny and you have to bite your tongue and not show that that was a good one. But instead, it rejoices when your husband or somebody you love chooses to tell you the truth about a difficult, bad decision that they made. Even though it stinks to hear it, and it hurts, and it breaks your heart, and it offends you. You still rejoice because the truth was brought to light, and the truth sets things free. 
It always rises up like a mama bear to protect her cubs or her man when danger comes. It always takes them at their word, even when you are sure that that dress doesn't look as flattering as they say it does. It always believes that in the morning there will be a fresh start. The sun will rise again. You can try again. There will be new perspective and time will heal wounds. It always refuses to give in to the enemy's lies, but instead fights. Fights to maintain that relationship and communication. Love never decides it's too tired to keep fighting and giving. Love chooses to continue. I challenge you, if you read those scriptures over and over, put your own twist on it and and check your own heart and see how that applies to your world. But that scripture is not the only thing that stands out to me when we think about marriage vows. There's that other part, that part where you say love and honor and sickness and in health. You remember that part? So I remember when I said those vows and I was like picturing like the sickness and health part and like what that could look like and making sure that my heart was really truly ready for that, you know, that I was actually going to do that. And I've had some close people in my world that have walked through some really, really difficult sickness and health kind of moments. Really bad ones that I'm so grateful that God has not put me on that path through that test. But I do have kind of an interesting story to share. Uh, We were married a couple years, and I had a five-month-old baby, JC. And I happened to be staying with my parents because, um, well, I was staying at their home, because they were at a conference, and my husband was at a youth camp. And so I was taking care of my older sister who had Down syndrome. And my grandmother, who was like 80-something at the time, was staying there as well. I don't even remember why. But I was the one in charge with all these people dependent on me. And I had this, uh, like, cyst in my ankle that just kind of kept getting bigger. But I was a stubborn woman, and I didn't want to pay to go to the doctor. I just figured it would go away. I'm not going to pay all those medical bills because our insurance wasn't great, which there's a whole lesson from God in that one. But we'll get there some other day. But so eventually it gets to the point where the doctors are like, lady, you got to get in here. So I go to the urgent care. The doctor's mortified that I waited so long. He slices, drains, whatever. So now I get to drive the vehicle home with these three people dependent on me with my left foot because it's 1030 at night and 80-year-old grandma's not driving that car and neither is my sister with Down syndrome. She tried to get behind the wheel for like two minutes once and that was the end of it. So, so left foot driving is the best choice in the world right now. So I get home and I call Chris and he drops everything and comes home, which was a huge blessing because his heart as they tried to do things for my leg it wasn't good enough so the next day they sent us to the hospital and I remember being in the room and having my wonderful urgent care doctor there with an infectious specialist and a surgeon all in my room all yelling at each other about what to do to save my leg from having to get cut off and not agreeing at all on how they were going to do that and then finally the surgeon just decides he's going to take matters into his own hands so he has the nurse order the pain meds but before they're doing anything he just says this is going to hurt cuts it open right there drains everything and then walks away and says i did what i can do leaves it to the infectious guy to do the rest not my favorite day and let me tell you those bills cost a little more than the doctor would have if i would have gone in the beginning but we've learned that lesson since then so chris spends like the next five days in the hospital with me taking care of me and taking care of this baby who needed her mother still during that time And then we go home, and Chris had the wonderful job of having to unpack and repack 
that wound multiple times a day. And I would not even look at it because I was pretty sure I knew what it was going to look like and that was not going to be good. So I would just lay on the couch. They would take care of me and do everything. And I have felt horrible about that for years, that he had to go through that and deal with that. But he was such a trooper. Now fast forward at 20 years, and I was in the ER with him not that long ago while the doctor was slicing open his infected area and draining it and telling me it was going to be my job to unpack it. Now thank Jesus, I did not have to repack and unpack. This was not going to be that kind of a thing. It was going to be a one-time unpack, but that was enough to like set my heart to racing in anticipation of the countdown of when I was going to have to do that. And I'm sorry, but my leg is maybe a nicer zone to... So we'll just say that. So I'm like terrified and mortified at what's going to come. But you know how sometimes knowing what's going to come or anticipating what's going to come is worse than the actual moment? This was one of those situations. But it reminds me of a story in the Bible with Jesus. Don't ask me how it just does. My brain is strange. I understand that. Just walk with me there. Jesus has this moment that some of us are familiar with called the Last Supper. There's a big painting about it where Jesus has dinner. (laughs) Well, there is. Jesus has dinner with all of his friends, and it's the last time because he knows what's coming next. And they leave dinner, and he goes to this garden to pray. And he has his friends wait over here and pray, and he goes and talks to Jesus. Or to God, he is Jesus. He talks to God, and he says, Not my will, but yours be done. He says, if this cup can be taken from me, please do. But not my will, but yours be done. And I was thinking about that. He knew what was to come. I knew what was to come, but I had like just an envision of what it might be like in my head. Jesus actually knew. Right? He's all-knowing. He transcends time. So I believe as he's sitting there before God crying out, he is feeling what it's going to feel like physically to be beaten like that. He totally understands what it's going to do to his mind to have everybody he loves ditch him and question him and deny him. He knows what it's going to do to his spirit to take on the sin of the world and to be completely separated from God. They were like one since before any of us could ever fathom time starting. They were together. They were one. They were a unit. I mean, sometimes you think, oh my gosh, I have to be away from my loved one for a day. No, I mean, like they were one, and he was going to have that separation happen because he was taking on the sin of the world. And I believe that that's why Jesus prayed that so fervently, because he truly knew exactly what was in his future and exactly what was coming. And yet he did it anyway. That's love. He says this in John fifteen twelve. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. That's love. But then he raises the bar. In Luke chapter 6, he says, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So picture those people that drive you nuts like your mother-in-law, or that coworker, or... Um, maybe it's somebody who abused you or hurt you or ridiculed you. Or maybe it's that other parent who is on your kid's ball team that you just kind of want to sock sometimes. Whoever that is, picture them and then listen to what Jesus says a little bit further down in that same chapter. He says, 
If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. What a challenge. Some of us, I feel like, need to hear that challenge today, that person that we need to forgive and figure out how to love because God is calling us to love them. But like any good student of the Bible, we can grab a verse and we can go, oh, I love that, and then miss what's around it. So I did my due diligence and I backed things up and I thought I would look at the chapter as a whole. They never read the chapter as a whole at the wedding. They just focus in on that nice happy part. But I thought I'd peek at what is around it. And I found some interesting things. So I want to make sure I'm sharing them with you. It starts in verse 1 with this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Anybody else feel like we got a lot of resounding gongs and clanging cymbals lately? People who maybe have like the, the right knowledge and idea and eloquence of words, but you just want them to shut up. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. Like my son Isaac is playing the drums this morning and we have the drum set in the house. And when he plays it, it sounds wonderful, right? But if he took a stick and he just kept hitting that cymbal... Steadily, you know, the two-year-old with the spoon on the pot and pan in your kitchen, and it just kept going and kept going. That's what he's describing it as. Like, stop, just make the noise, stop. God isn't asking us to have eloquence of words. He's asking us to communicate it with love. And somehow the love in the communication is what changes everything. And then the next verse it says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Now, like, I have to sit at that one for a second because I think if you have all knowledge and you have the faith to move mountains, you got something. I'm impressed. Good job. Right? Like, you're smart. I would notice that. You can move mountains. I don't have that faith all the time. Ever, probably. Like, that sounds like something. Yet God is saying, if you're missing the love piece in it, it's a waste. It's nothing. That doesn't count. Then he goes on to say, if I, pos- uh, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You get it? Love is kind of important. It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of like the key ingredient. The next part is that part of scripture that we know really well. And I'm going to read it again, and I've already read it the real way, the Heather version. I'm going to read it one more time, but a different way again. And here's why. Because there's a spot in scripture that says, God is love. 
I'm going to get my math teacher on for two seconds. God is love. If I was making that a mathematical equation, it would be God equals love. And then we do this thing called substitution when we're solving things. So wherever you see the word God, you could replace it with the word love. Or where you see the word love, you could replace it with the word God. That's how logic works. Isn't that a fun little math lesson for you all? So I'm going to replace the word love with God. And here's why. I think sometimes we have messed up perspectives. I think maybe we had a father who is absent or a father who is abusive or we had uh, maybe a pastor in a church that was offensive or um, somebody in our lives that really messed things up for us. And as a result, we don't see God for who he really is. We see God as being far away. We see God as being judging. We see God as being scary. And we don't really see who he truly is. Now, we're that way with a lot of things in life. We all have biases based on our experiences. That's normal. So let me give you one as an example, and then we're going to come back to God in just a second. I am blonde, and my entire teenage years, we're going to pick on my daddy now because I told you about my mom, he would come home from work with literally a printed page of dumb blonde jokes every day for a couple of months. So I had heard all of them. Now, he was not trying to be mean. He was just trying to be funny. He had all blonde daughters. It was his thing. But you know how blondes have that reputation for being stupid? So this is like maybe an older bias, but we're going to go with it because it's politically safer. So if you had that idea that blondes are dumb, in order to correct that wrong implication, because maybe there was that really dumb blonde that you went to high school with and that's all you can think of, you need to instead train your brain to see really intelligent blondes, like those rocket scientist blondes or those astronauts or the very successful female businesswomen or things like that. And if you start looking at these very intelligent blondes around you, then your brain starts understanding that blonde and intelligence can actually go hand in hand. And side note... When I was researching it, apparently there was a study done and blonde women actually have higher IQ averages than some of their other color hair counterparts. They're actually at the top of the list, I'm just saying. So, but if you'd start thinking about those truth things, then it replaces this wrong idea. So when I read this scripture, I want you to think about which thing maybe doesn't sit as comfortably in your heart as being true, but know that it's in the Bible, so it is true. And that might be something that you have to start intentionally fighting against, intentionally retraining your brain to see the truth about who God is so you can fully experience it. So here's where it goes. God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. So what do we do with all that? What is your action step today? 
Is there something in there and in the character of God that you don't see and don't know? Have you missed that God is kind? Have you missed that God keeps no record of wrongs? Is there something in there that you just have to quiet yourself before God and say, Hey, God, I've never seen you as kind. But you say you're kind, so show me. Let me see the truth. Let me see your kindness in my heart. Or let me see that you will always hope and always persevere and not give up on me. Let me see whatever that is. What is it in God that you are missing because he is fully God and he has it all and he wants you to experience that? Or is it maybe that you know God has it, but it's something that you're missing for you? Like, I don't respond in kindness. I am easily angered. I don't have the patience I should, or something like that. Now, the old Heather would say, if that's the case, what you have to do is just work really hard to get that patience. But that's not how it works. It's acknowledging that patience is God and who he is. And if I sit before him, quiet and still, and I ask him to show me more and more, God, show me how you're patient, show me how you're kind, whatever it is, that his patience or his kindness overflows in my heart so strongly that that's what comes out. That's what it needs to be. It is not a Heather trying to do better or be better. It is a Heather sitting before God and God just infusing who he is into me so that what leaks out of me is him and not my own junk. Maybe instead you are catching on that you sound like a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong. Maybe you have a good message. Maybe you know truth and you just want to tell everybody because you know and you want them to see it for Pete's sake. But you're missing that piece of love in it. Then zip it. Have God's love infuse your heart in such a way that that's what oozes out. He will give you opportunity. He will give you words. But he will also give you wisdom and love. That'll make it so much more effective and so much more powerful in his own time. And those words may look a whole lot more like you loving and acting than actually speaking. Maybe you're like me and you're like the, I do everything, I do it all right, do, do, do. And you don't ever actually just stop and be. Maybe God wants you to just stop and feel his love and spend time with him. That's what matters most to him. And I think those are the things that actually matter most to those around you. Or maybe you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, lady, because I've heard about Jesus and I've seen the painting in the history books, but I know nothing about him. Then our heart's cry as a church is that you would talk to Jesus, that you would start that first conversation, that you would acknowledge how awesome he is, and that you would just say, here I am, Jesus. Just show me. Just show me. And he will. He has never once denied that for anyone. He will show you his power. He will show you his love. He will show you how amazing he is. He will wipe away all the other junk because it doesn't matter when you're looking at Jesus. Let's finish out the chapter. I think it speaks for itself. It says, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. 
where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you and for your goodness. Lord, I am grateful for this world that you created and for each person that you creatively crafted. I'm thankful, Lord, that you are a loving God. So many people and cultures out there worship gods that aren't loving at all. But we have the privilege of worshiping the true God who is loving and good and wants to bless us. So, Heavenly Father, wherever each person in this room is at, would you touch their heart? Would you elbow them in their ribs? Would you speak to their mind whatever it is that you want them to hear? Because you see each of them uniquely, and so you're going to have a unique conversation with each of them. But, Lord, help us hear your voice right now in this moment and in the days to come. Would we as a church not be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, but would we be love? embodied in everything that we say and do to the people closest to us and to our enemies. And Lord, if anyone in this room does not know you, we just pray that they would reach out, that you would pour your love on them so strongly that they can't deny your existence and your goodness and your truth. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Valentine's Day, and I would like you to love on people around you. So have a wonderful day, and I'll see you next week. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.